This is the Flatlining Podcast. President Biden got some help from former President Obama today as the White House announced a proposal aimed at lowering health insurance costs for millions of Americans. Today, the Biden-Harris administration is going even further by moving to fix a glitch in the regulations that will lower premiums for nearly one million people who need it and allow 200,000 more uninsured Americans get access to coverage. The U.S. spends more than $3.5 trillion on health care every year. It's nearly a fifth of our economy. As a percentage of GDP, that's almost twice what most developed nations spend. And yet Americans still die of preventable and treatable diseases at higher rates than in other high-income countries. Ours has been called the most expensive, least effective healthcare system in the modern world. If you zoom out into the future and you look back and you ask the question, what was Apple's greatest contribution to mankind? It will be about health. Apple also provides software solutions like HealthKit, which was announced back in 2014, and ResearchKit, which helps healthcare professionals use data from Apple devices for medical research. Their devices are used widely in hospitals. For example, nurses frequently use iPhones or iPads to track medication administration. The largest medical city in the world, the Texas Medical Center in Houston. Here, doctors test artificial organs built from scratch. Technicians design robots to speed efficiency. Surgeons use virtual reality reconstruction to see tumors inside the body before ever making an incision. And it, like other gold standard medical centers across the U.S., draw hundreds of thousands of patients from around the world. and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net and with me is uh, a different sounding Ron Howergan. How are you doing, Ron? I'm good. Yeah, for, for a couple of days, I'll have, uh, I guess, my radio voice because I'm struggling <laughs> with, uh, I tested COVID positive earlier this week, so I'm dealing with little throat issues. And so again, for, for a couple of days, I get sort of the deeper radio voice. Now, this is interesting because a few weeks ago when we did our COVID episode, we both pointed out that, hey, this whole time we haven't tested positive. So I guess I should feel a little bit responsible for jinxing you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, my uh, my son uh, was at a school function cleaning up the band room and he caught it there and he's been gracious enough to give it to everybody in the family. So we've all oh, had it now. Well, that's very generous. Yes. All right. Well, this week we're going to be continuing our discussion on uh, the three factors of the healthcare equation. And we've talked about this a couple of different times, and, and that's the quality, the access, and the affordability of healthcare here in the United States. And last week we spent a significant amount of time talking about access. And this week we want to focus a little bit more on the quality and the affordability aspect of healthcare. And I want to start this week by talking about uh, affordability. And I think it's, it, this is a perfect time to talk about it because as we played in the introduction uh, this week, the former president, Barack Obama, returned to the White House to talk about uh, expansions and revisions to the Affordable Care Act. And so I guess the first question is, is what, what Ron, does affordable health care look like here in the United States? Or what is the goal for it to look like here in the United States? 
Well, I, I think the question of affordability really is one of depending on where you're looking at it from. I mean, um, most of the people in the country, affordability means being able to afford insurance and have it not be too expensive. And then also to have their out-of-pocket expenses, their copay for their drugs or for their office visit, their deductible be affordable, something they can handle inside their budget. So from a consumer's perspective, that's what affordable means to them. Employer groups, it means you know healthcare premiums that they can afford in their budget. But from a macro perspective, let's say from the government or from a macroeconomic perspective, it means the total cost burden on the economy. So it means a little bit different depending on which, you know, which perspective you have, but it really all gets down to how much money we spend out of a given budget, whether it's the country or an individual, to purchase the health care that we consume. So for the average American then, would you say that their employer-based insurance is considered affordable or would you say that that stretches the limits of affordability? You know, I think from the studies I've seen, you know, the average American doesn't view healthcare as affordable in this country. And I think they're combining how much they have to pay out of their pocket, let's say, to buy insurance as part of their employer group and how much they have to pay every time they go to the drugstore or the doctor or the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. We know that medical debt is a huge issue in this country. Um, we know it, it straps an awful lot of people. So I think the average American now doesn't feel like healthcare is affordable. Um, and definitely feels like it should be less expensive. So when we, when someone like Senator Bernie Sanders, and we keep using him because he's probably the most consistent when talking about things like Medicare for all and, and, and wanting to change the healthcare system in the United States, when we look at, when he says that he wants to make healthcare affordable, as we talked about before, he, he and making it universal, he wants to make it so that most Americans don't have to pay out of pocket when they go to see a doctor, when they go to the pharmacy, similar to what the case may be in the United Kingdom or in Canada. On the one hand, it's affordable for your average American. On the other hand, it's not necessarily affordable for the country as a whole. Can you describe and explain that? Yeah, so um, if we pass, let's say, Medicare for all, sure, from an individual perspective, you'd say, oh, it just got more affordable. I get free health care. Well, you know, we all know that saying there's no such thing as a free lunch, mm-hmm. and it's not free. It's going to have to be paid for in taxes somewhere else. And so the question becomes, what is that tax burden? What is that fee that someone's going to have to pay? And really, what other things does that do to the economy? Um, econ- economists talk about ceteris paribus, which is all the Latin I know right there. You just got it all. And it means all other things being held equal. And so in economic study, you say, well, if I mess with this one variable, but I have to hold everything else equal to see what it does, that doesn't work. So if we pass Medicare for all and it becomes free health care for the consumer, but we have to raise income taxes and business taxes and maybe a, a VAT tax or something, that's going to have an impact. And so it may not be affordable for the country. And that impact could be an increase in unemployment. It could be a reduction in GDP growth, which means a decrease in wages or labor. And so you've really got to balance the whole cost, not just did I make it free for somebody by charging somebody else. Right. And in, in one sense, too, if you're adding a value added tax, it's not just charging someone else. It's charging the same people that would have been paying before. It's just coming in a different form. Yeah. And, and, and you're just, you know, you're, you're deciding who you're going to make pay. And for some people, it may be the same people. Other people, it may become free where they used to have to pay. But if their employer has to pay it through, let's say, a business tax, what does their employer do to their wages? Um, 
if uh, you know other employers have to do it through a business tax and they leave the country, those jobs might go away. So you really have to look at the whole system and what it does. And just changing the financing from employer-based to Medicare for all doesn't necessarily change the overall cost of healthcare. It's just moving the money somewhere else. Right. Well, in that sense, then, what what makes American healthcare, in that sense, so unaffordable? Why is it so expensive the way that it is now? There's a lot of factors that factor into that. Um, one is the fact that we have incredible access to the absolute nth degree of technology and availability. You know, new drugs, once they're FDA approved, are automatically provided here. New technologies often are developed here and provided here. So we get access to technologies and care that other countries don't. That makes it um, expensive in this country. The other is that we are an incredibly unhealthy society. Mm-hmm. You know, we lead the world in obesity and diabetes and you know, substance abuse and things that, that cause incredible problems with health care that we have to pay for. Um, that is part of what makes healthcare unaffordable in this country. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a free market system where if somebody comes up with a new technology, uh, I'll give you a perfect example. I was on a call earlier with an ENT group. There's this new technology for sleep apnea mm-hmm. called Inspire. Okay. It's a three hour surgery and the equipment is extremely expensive. I think 20 grand or so. Mm-hmm. It replaces the old CPAP machines, you know, those awkward sort of nighttime right. breathing machines. So if you're the consumer, it's wonderful. I don't have to wear that big thing over my face. But the question becomes, should we be paying, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars to replace a five hundred dollar machine and a three hour surgery? Well, in this country we have access to it, and most other countries they don't. And out of sheer curiosity, for because Inspire is one of those things that we're starting to see TV ads for. And is that something that uh, a lot of insurance companies will cover, given that it's a relatively new procedure? Yeah. I mean, they're all covering it, um, and they're covering it at, at a pretty hefty expense. Um, the TV ads are designed to, you know, boost your demand for it because mm-hmm. there's a company that makes a lot of money for having developed and selling that machine. So in what sense, then, does um, marketing and... Um, and we're getting into a little bit of what I want to get into later with quality. What, what set does marketing and, and innovation play a role in driving up the cost of our health care? Both play a huge role. Um, years ago, um, these are decades ago, um, a lot of the insurance companies were trying to drive down pharmacy cost with formularies. You know, so you could only get this drug of this class, and they would have these restricted formularies to try to drive down cost. And what the drug manufacturers realized was they just went around the insurance companies, and they developed direct-to-consumer marketing. And now we see drug ads on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. And the consumer started demanding these products, and it sort of broke up the idea of formularies. You know, so the things like Inspire are another perfect example. These these consumer ads driving demand for services help drive up the cost. Um, So that's a huge piece. Technology is an enormous driver of cost. Now, not all technology is bad. I mean, the development Mm -hmm. of the MRI machine has allowed doctors to do things that they were never able to see or do. It came with a pretty hefty price. And that's that balance of how much of our increased cost in this country and we are very expensive per capita compared to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. how much of it is driven by we also have that much better quality? I would argue some, but not all. 
And the TV ads for the prescriptions is interesting because that's, I think, a unique thing to the United States. I don't believe that's allowed in the European Union or in Canada. That you could have a, you know, a television ad for a prescription drug that you could go ask your doctor for if you wanted to. Um, and in what sense has that harmed the average health of Americans? Do you think, if any? Well, I don't know that it's harmed the average health of Americans. I. I do think what it's done is that we've created, and we were already there. We were a society that's used to fixing problems with pills or surgery, mm-hmm. and we're becoming more and more that. I mean, you know, let's not, um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm not one to, to, I shouldn't throw stones. I live in a glass house. I mean, I weigh more than I should, and, you know, I should exercise more than I do, and I'm, I'm trying to get that under control. But, you know, let's solve, a, you know, a, a cholesterol problem with a pill rather than, uh, diet and exercise. Let's solve diabetes with an injection rather than diet and exercise. And not right. everybody, you know, can do that. But we reach the easy solutions because we have money in this country. So in, in that sense, too, and I, I don't want to get too much off on this tangent, but it's something we've talked about before where everyone, especially in the age of the Internet, everyone has become their own expert. In what way has it has TV ads or you know, in magazines or wherever, seeing seeing ads for prescription drugs or different procedures. In what way has that um, funneled the, you know, Twitter expert mentality that we have right now in the in the U.S. and in other parts of the world as well? Well, it, yeah, I talk to a lot of doctors who get really frustrated with the uh, the online experts, whether they learned it from Twitter or the internet. Mm-hmm. who come into the exam room and they've diagnosed themselves and they know what they need. You know, this is the acceptable, I want this prescription. And it becomes very difficult for the doctor to try to talk them out of it. Right. Um, and we saw it with COVID and we see it with everything else. You know, these people that, that, you know, they see an ad or they see something online or their brother's cousin saw something on Twitter and suddenly the doctor's, you know, facing that uphill battle. And I, I don't blame, there's some doctors who just give into it and go, fine, here's your, you know, it's not going to help you, but here you go. Right, um, and the TV ads play into that as well. People see, well, I want the purple pill, or I want this, or I want that. Um, it becomes very difficult for the doctors to sort of, you know, dissuade them of that. And I guess by giving them the wrong, well, it, it, in a lot, some sense, this is the wrong medication, the medication that's not going to solve the particular issue that they have. That does, in turn, cause the uh, health problem to persist and not get fixed, and in that sense, drive up the cost even more. Well, and, and, and again, we, we face that with, you know, most dramatically, most recently with COVID, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning with hydrochloroquine, you know, at first there was some thought that maybe this might help and it was being used on a sort of an emergency basis. And the first time that the actual studies came through, it was pretty definitive. No, it doesn't help. And it increases your chances of a cardiac issue. So they, they took it off label. And I mean, there were people suing hospitals to try to get hydrochloroquine. Right. The, the data was clear. Um, you know, this whole thing with ivermectin. Um, and there's still people who don't believe the hydrochloroquine studies or don't believe that ivermectin, you know, wasn't the, the end-all, be-all dream. And, and, and that's probably the most dramatic example because there were people fighting for a drug that had no clinical benefit that actually could cause cardiac issue so it actually it was dangerous and then wondering why their doctor wouldn't prescribe it or why their hospital wouldn't let the, the doctor prescribe it um, that's a perfect example of where you know the, the internet 
took people down the wrong path and actually increase cost and, and reduce quality. And I love to go on tangents talking about weird conspiracy theories and, and, you know, what the truth is and what it isn't based off of the, you know, philosophy and theology of the internet. But uh, we're going to talk, we're going to try and stick to what our plan was today and talk about affordability and and quality. But I do think the the innovation factor does play a major role. I mean, we see uh, right now Congress is working to try and cap uh, insulin prices. And of course, insulin is a fairly common drug now in the United States, uh, but there are a lot of other drugs. We've talked previously about, um, uh, I'm the name of the drug is now escaping me, an MS drug that does yeah. work very well. And then another drug developed for Alzheimer's that did not work very well. Right. That both of them cost obscene amounts of money. But in the one sense, you need to have that cost to cover the cost of research for other drugs. And perhaps when the demand rises, the cost for it will come down as the supply increases. Yeah, and, and you know, first of all, the, the idea of capping insulin, I mean, I understand the issue with insulin. From an economist, I will tell you that price controls in a free market economy never work. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they always have negative side effects. It's so difficult to, you know, to mandate price controls without getting sort of the bad side effects. So anytime somebody talks about, well, if we just put in price controls, it makes me worried. It's the same thing with wage controls. It's the same thing with anything where you try to control a free market economy. It it has negative side effects. Um, And and the other thing is, you know, when people talk about the high cost of research and the high cost of R&D and, you know, what the drug companies get at the end of it, it's a highly risky game for them to play. Yes, they can hit home runs, but they can lose a ton of money on research that never, you know, never bears fruit. It's sort of like drilling oil wells. You know, when you hit a gusher, that's great. But, you know, when you sink a bunch of money and you get come up with nothing, it doesn't work. And what we've gotten out of it, in addition to very expensive drugs, we've gotten some incredible advances in pharmacy and therapeutics on cancers and mm-hmm. MS. And, you know, I just was reading something today about this new breakthrough for a lot of the blood cancers, which could be just groundbreaking. I mean, one of the days, one of these days, they're going to cure some of this stuff. And then the question becomes, was it worth it? Well, you know, if it's you or your loved one, it absolutely was. Um, And so my concern with all this talk about sort of capping on drug prices and stuff is, okay, well, that's fine. That'll help lower the cost. But then we're going to get rid of the innovation. And then we might not cure that next cancer or find a solution for horribly degenerative diseases like MS or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Um, as long as you're okay with the fact that we're going to stop getting that, um, you just can't, you know, have your cake and eat it too. You can't have all these drug prices capped and then still expect to get these incredible advances. Right. And it's important too, to make sure that some of these companies, they don't, I mean, obviously if something, you know, time after time, after time, after time is not going to make an improvement, you don't want to keep funding it because it's not going to, you know, it's not going to come to fruition. But I think a perfect example of something that it took a lot of time and effort are what we now have with the mRNA vaccines. I mean, it's been something that's been developed for a while for trying to combat things like Zika and HIV, and they didn't work for those particular things. But when we tried it and tested it for the coronavirus, it shown to work very well and do exactly what the vaccines were supposed to do. Yeah, that's that that vaccine, that technology, the mRNA vaccine technology is 15 years in the making mm-hmm. and a lot of money. Now, hindsight being 2020, now that we're, you know, we got through this pandemic and it, 
damn worth it. I mean, right. yes. I mean, um, but if we had, and if we hadn't done that, we'd be in much worse shape. So a lot of times you really can't see the, the, you know, the payoff, but they knew that they were onto something. And if they could ever crack it, something that could handle viral, um, issues like that would be incredibly valuable. And they were right. Thank goodness. And, and it's important. I, just one more thing that, mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad that we're talking about affordability and quality because the two things are so married together. Right. You know, yes. it really is like that balloon where if you push on one end, the other end goes up. I mean, you you can't separate the two because a lot of what people want to do to make things more affordable may have some reduction in quality, and we got to be careful about how much we play that game. And it's and it's similar to what we talked about last week when you talk about universality and access. You're pushing up on the other end of affordability and quality in that regard. We've got this strangely shaped triangular balloon that we have right. to control, and uh, it, in a lot of cases, you know, it's not going to be an even flat surface. You're going to have two big peaks and one kind of deflated area. Exactly. So when we talk about uh, affordability here in the United States, how does it compare to what you would consider affordable in the rest of the world. And I'm speaking mostly of the developed world, uh, the geographic north, the geographic west. Uh, what do we have here in the United States that could be seen as a benefit affordably over places like the European Union or the United Kingdom? Well, you know, one of the problems when we talk about affordability is people want to focus on a number. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's true. You can say that we spend more per capita in this country on health care than anyone else and you take the developed nations you know we spend twice as much on health care per capita as Canada does and people want to point to that and say well we don't get twice the quality you know we're getting bad return on that investment well there's a lot more that goes into just that one number you know another example another thing I like to tell people is yeah we spend more on health care we spend more on everything we have the largest the highest per capita average income in this country you know we're a rich country um, we pay more for a lot of things. So some of that difference on health care versus what we pay here in Canada is, is explained by the fact our incomes are higher. Mm-hmm. Doctors make more here than they do in other countries. Some of it's what I already talked about, which is we're an incredibly sick population. So it's not starting with the same raw materials. It's not an apples to apples. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, uh, you could make an argument that that doesn't explain all of it and that there's some amount of health care cost in this country, a significant amount that isn't explained by how sick we are or by that we have more income and that healthcare is less affordable here than it is in most other countries. Namely, you know, we spend more as a percentage of gross domestic product in this country than any other country. Um, so it's, it, but it's, there's a lot more factors in it than just that. And something that you've mentioned in the past too, and I don't remember the exact statistic off the top of my head, but the, the majority of consumers of healthcare in the United States excuse me, the, the highest costs of healthcare in the United States don't go to the majority of consumers. It goes to a small group of very unhealthy people. Or yeah, so, not necessarily unhealthy, but sick people. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the way the numbers work out is about 5% of the U.S. population consumes about half of all of our healthcare cost. So 5% mm-hmm. of the people consume half of the cost. And if you think about, you know, if we've got roughly 300-some million people in this country, you're talking about 15 million people consume half of the cost, which is about $2 trillion. Well, that's pretty, pretty, you know, slanted. Right. Now, the, on the other end, 50% of the population consumes only 5% of the cost. 
And that's one of the issues we have is the concept of insurance is spreading that cost over, you know, over a broad range. So 5% of our population, whatever insurance they have, gets an amazing deal. And half of the population could say, well, I'm paying for what I don't get, you know. It's the same argument of, I, why do I pay property tax to go for the schools if I don't have any kids? Right. Um, but that's the way the system works. So, yeah, it is a very small percentage of our population that consumes a huge amount of the health care cost. While we're on the affordability uh, topic, how much do you know about the family glitch that President Biden talked about last week with former President Obama at the White House? The family glitch in the Affordable Care Act, that is. Yeah, well, it's um, <laughs> it's... It's not a glitch. Um, it's, you know, it, it was sort of designed into the Affordable Care Act, and it's something you can change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it just gets to, from a rating perspective, how you spread the dollars, um, how you charge things. And, and so, for example, um, uh, when, when families sign up for insurance or when an employer's charge for insurance, they have what's called a rate step. And the rate step means if you're going to cover one employee, that's a 1.0. If you're going to cover that employee and, let's say, a spouse, that's a 2.0. Well, what do you do with families? You know, Because you, cause you mm-hmm. don't charge for every single headcount. So they do this rate step. And you could do a 1 to 2 to 2.7, which means you only charge a family, no matter how many kids, 2.7 times the individual. Or right. a 1 to 2 to 3. Well, that means big families sort of get a break. And all they did was mess around with the rate step, and which will shift more cost onto the individual, a little less cost to families. It's still the same total amount of cost. So then what, what exactly did they, they necessarily, quote unquote, fix? Uh, with, ch- or, or what are they trying to fix with this proposal? Yeah, they, they changed the rate step. Uh, they're going to change the rate step so families become less expensive. And so he, you know, he's right in saying this will be more affordable for families which will mean it'll be more expensive for individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things the Affordable Care Act did when it was first passed was it mandated that the highest rate you could charge um, was no more than three times the lowest rate you would charge. So they compacted it. Okay. So in other words, a 25-year-old male, which is probably your cheapest individual, okay, right. if that's going to cost $100, they said, well, you could, no, you could charge no more than $300 for anybody else, even a 64-year-old male who's probably your most expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, Even though the actuaries would tell you that that 64-year-old male should be maybe seven times more expensive than the 25-year-old male, they capped it at three. And all that does is shift more cost to the 25-year-old male and less cost to the 64-year-old. That's all they did. When they, when they want to change that rate step for families, it's going to lower the cost for families and increase the cost for individuals and couples. Just move so, the money around. Right, right. So I want to stay on the the different – I mean, we, we talked before about employer-based insurance. We've talked about universal health care as a way of insuring people. Affordable Care Act is another option. There seems to be – and I don't know relatively how new it is, but there seems to be – I hear a lot more radio ads for it at least. These new health share programs uh, – Solidarity is one of them. I know there's a couple Catholic ones, CMF Cure is another one. What are these and how can they help make healthcare more affordable? And do they, in fact, make healthcare more affordable? Um, they are insurance without insurance, okay. is a good way to put it. So, a health share, basically, when you, when you think about the concept of insurance, 
what you're going to do is going to collect money from everybody. You know, whether the employer pays it for every other employees or individuals or whatever. I'm going to collect some money from everybody. And I'm going to have this pool of money. Mm-hmm. And then when people get sick, I'm going to pay money out of that pool of money. And hopefully there's enough money to pay for everybody's sickness. So when you, when you, Matthew, when you're healthy, you're going to pay me in every month. And, and when other people are sick, I'm going to use your money to pay them. And then when it's your turn to get sick, they're going to use, you know. So that's, in essence, what ins- the concept of insurance is, except you have an insurance company doing it. And you have all right. these re- regulations, et cetera. What health shares are is the same concept. We're going to collect a little bit of money from everybody. And then when you're sick, we're going to share in that pool of money and pay for these claims. Now, the difference is it's not insurance, meaning it's not regulated. So in a regulated insurance product, the insurance company has to pay your claims, even if they go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. They have to have reserves that the state can attack and say, no, no, you're going to pay these people's claims. And these health share, they don't have to. If they go under, you could be stuck with a big bill and there's really no sort of legal recourse. Now, part of the reason why they've become popular and part of the reason why they're successful is they tend to be geared at populations that are healthier. Mm-hmm. And they know that. You know, We know from actuarial science there are industries, there are businesses, there are geographic areas that are sicker. Well, a lot of these health shares are religious-based. And one of the things mm-hmm. we know from actuarial science is that tends to be a more healthy population. For example, they tend to have less substance abuse. They tend to have less of some of the other issues. They tend to be a bit more uh, higher in the socioeconomic ring, which leads to better health. So what they're doing is they're kind of insuring a population that's a little bit healthier and therefore likely cheaper than if those people went out and bought insurance with the normal pool of people. So is it more affordable? For those people, yeah, it can be. Does it reduce the overall cost of healthcare? No, not at all. They're they're in essence skimming off the healthy people and one could argue the more people that get into those health shares the more expensive it makes for the other folks who are in typical insurance because you skim off the young healthy people so it sounds like then you you really need to have one system which would be difficult here in the united states given the type of the free market economy that we have but it sounds like you need to have one system in place uh, be it employer-based health, everyone's on employer-based health insurance, or everyone is on the Affordable Care Act, or everyone is part of a health share program, in order for it to even out and be equal. Because it's, what it sounds like you're saying is that if we have some people over here, and some people over here, and some people over here, it gets more expensive for everyone because we've got six different ways for paying for things. Um yeah, I mean, one of the problems that happens in insurance, especially with this 5% chewing up 50% of the cost, is what's called adverse selection. If I'm an insurance company, if I get too much of that, those unhealthy people, it'll kill me. So I need to try to avoid them. Um, and if somebody's skimming off a lot of that 50% that don't use much cost, that hurts me as well. So, you know, having a system like Medicaid for the poor, that's fine. That's a universal mm-hmm. system. Having Medicaid for the elderly, that's fine. But when you get into that middle, you've got to be careful that you aren't letting people siphon off the young healthies or that any insurance company isn't getting too many of the sick people. Now, one way, there are several ways to do that. You know, one way is you could have federal laws that said, federal and state laws that said, if you're going to offer insurance, you have to offer to everybody, which means you've got to get in, you know, take whatever comes. Okay. There's other ways that you can mitigate any adverse selection. 
But you're right, if we allow multiple systems where some are disadvantaged, meaning the insurance companies have to take all comers, but these health shares can siphon off the unhealthy people, you're, you're begging problems. This may be an advantage that some of these other countries have over the United States, I would say, perhaps. I mean, within Canada, you've got uh, province-based plans and the United Kingdom, you have the NHS, but it's it's you're, everyone is on the same system or within the same, or at least in Canada, in the same province in the same provincial system. Um, which that way you don't you don't have that you don't have the siphoning off the uh, healthy people because everyone's paying into the same program. Yeah, I mean that's an advantage of a a single payer system is you got all the risks so you don't have to worry about people siphoning off or people getting too much risk. Um, and again, we talked before, they also have a much more universally healthy and homogeneous population. So right. their risk um, spread, if you will, is not nearly as bad as ours. Well, I want to take uh, this moment, since we're about halfway through the program so far, and switching to the other side of, of the topic that we want to talk today, which is the quality of American healthcare. And you mentioned before that there are some people who seem to think that because of how expensive our healthcare is and how unhealthy Americans on average are, that we're not getting a good return on our investment. So is it fair to, so is that actually true that we don't have quality health care here in the United States? Yeah, I, I think it's the opposite. I think we okay. have yep. the best quality in the world, and I think the numbers can prove it. I think quality is one of the most misunderstood arguments in healthcare. I mean, if people don't understand affordability, they absolutely don't understand quality. And there are some avenues that people use that just frustrate me because it's it's not telling the story and it's leading people to the wrong conclusion. So, for example, the World Health Organization ranks all the countries in the world on healthcare. Mm -hmm. And they say it's quality. Now, I don't think what they're doing is quality by their rankings, but so the U.S. ranked in the last one 37th for, for healthcare quality. Now, this on the face of it is ludicrous to me. Here are some countries that supposedly have better healthcare than we do. Okay. All right. Chile, Morocco, okay. Cyprus, Colombia, and Greece all have better healthcare than we do. Now, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody say, oh, damn it, I've been diagnosed with cancer. If only I lived in Greece. I could get some good health care, you know, <laughs> right. but that's touted as they're better than we are. And, and I think it's just such a, an aberration of, of what quality is and the way that they're, that they're scoring it, but, but that's what happens. The other thing is, you know, and, and I'm sorry, I'll go in sort of deep in this, but this no, one that's really all right. just this is drives good. me nuts. So when I think of quality, I think of, okay, if I'm sick, where do I have the best chance of getting better? Okay, what is the, the what country or what system is the be my best chance of getting better? So in 2019, um, the Kaiser Family Foundation, the Peterson Kaiser Family Foundation did a wonderful study to really try to get down to quality of care, okay? And they compared countries that they said were sort of like countries. These are first world nations, you know, similar kind of income, technology, adaption, et cetera. And so it was the United States, the Netherlands, and they also wanted to pick countries from various parts of the globe. 
So it was the U.S., the Netherlands, Australia, Sweden, Japan, Austria, Germany, France, Canada, and the U.K. Okay. okay. All right. Those would be who we would think of as our peers um, in that study. Mm-hmm. And there were some really interesting sort of results of the study. First of all, they started measuring things like obesity. Okay. The United States, 36% of our population is clinically obese, one out of three. Mm-hmm. The average for the rest of the countries, 20%, one out of five. So in our country, you're 40% more likely to be obese than the average of those other countries. They looked at substance abuse. Our substance abuse average in this country is twice the average of the comparable countries. countries. Mm-hmm. So people in this country are 40% more likely to be obese and twice as likely to have a substance abuse problem. And what they showed was that the disease burden in this country is 31% higher than the comparable country average. That's what I mean by we start as a very unhealthy population. Right. So even with that sort of bad raw material, if you think about a doctor going, look, I'm starting in in the batter's box with two strikes already. I got an unhealthy patient and, you know, so great. Even with that, then they started looking at things that would be indicative of quality. They looked at 30-day mortality rate after a heart attack or stroke. Okay? Mm-hmm. We led the world, even with a more unhealthy population. They looked at the mortality rate for breast, colorectal, and cervical cancers. We led the world. Mm-hmm. We have a lower mortality rate for all cancers than the comparable country average even knowing that the patients who get cancer in this country are much more likely to be obese, which is a comorbid situation, mm-hmm. have a substance abuse problem, which is a comorbid situation, have diabetes, have all this. So that's where I say, in fact, the fact that we're alive at all in this country shows what amazing quality, because our doctors are keeping us alive when we're trying our damnedest to kill ourselves. Um, and that's why I mean by I think we have the best quality in the country. now. Is that completely explain the fact we pay twice as much for it? Probably not, but it explains some of it. You know, in staying on that idea of, of where we rank in comparison to other countries with regards to mortality and other things, I think looking at COVID and having an honest look at where we rank with COVID is is, is critical as well because we often, I mean, the United States, I, I believe, has had the most deaths out of COVID than any other country. And it's in part because we are much bigger than a lot of these other countries. But our observed case to fatality ratio is significantly less than a lot of other countries. Mexico, according to Johns Hopkins, has their resource center. Mexico has a 5.7% case to fatality ratio, whereas the United States is at 1%. And it's tied with India, which is significantly bigger than the United States. And I think that that also shows just how good quality you do get here if you were diagnosed with something like COVID-19 compared to some of these other countries. Yeah, and, and again, going back to the fact that the starting point, we knew that COVID was much more severe for people with comorbid situations, mm-hmm. okay? So we already start out, again, with two strikes in the box, you know, as we step in the box. And the fact that we drove our fatality rate down that low shows just what kind of incredible delivery system we have here. The other thing that people miss on the whole COVID thing is most of the advances in, and it was on the fly, in how to treat mm-hmm. COVID, 
happened in this country and were spread to other European countries, et cetera. Learning that intubation was the last step, you should probably never do it. Learning that, that even rotating the patient helped. Learning which drugs helped. I mean, monoclonal antibodies and all the other things, and now there's two oral medications that help mm-hmm. a lot with it. We're all developed here. And so not only did we drive down our own mortality rate, we probably can take credit for driving down a fair amount of Europe and the other developed nations' mortality rates. I want to ask you also about comparing uh, quality in the U.S. to quality in other countries, keeping in mind that we have those two strikes against us. And I want to start by mentioning just anecdotal evidence, because I live near Ann Arbor, Michigan. We have a lot of really good hospitals in this area, particularly with the University of Michigan. And prior to COVID, when they shut down the border, you had a lot of Canadians crossing the border to come get health care here in the United States. So when you hear someone like Senator Sanders constantly talk about how great the Canadian health care system is, why is it that wealthy Canadians are driving across the Ambassador Bridge to get their care in Ann Arbor as opposed to getting it at their hospital in Windsor or Toronto? Well, there, there, there's a couple things. You know, you, you look at the people crossing the border in Canada to get health care here, and it's because they don't get the same quality there. They have to wait longer. They might not get the same access to the same drugs or the same uh, equipment or technology. So they know that driving over that bridge, you know, from Windsor into Detroit, that their chance of getting their issue resolved quickly, and, and in many cases their chance of living, improve. Mm-hmm. It's just that's why they do it. Another thing I always talk about when people talk about, you know, the, the quality here, et cetera, um, the Cleveland Clinic, one of the world-renowned best places for care anywhere. I mean, you know, Mayo, Cleveland, yeah. they're all, the, yep. you know. The Cleveland Clinic has multiple TV channels in their hospital that are Arabic-speaking. Now, Cleveland is not an enormous Arabic population. No, Why? it's not. Because a lot of the rich Saudis come there when they need care. Why? Because it's better. You know, I, I, I had a, a uh, father of a family member who went to Cleveland Clinic, had some very difficult back issues and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were evaluating him to have Steffi plates put in, which are a design thing that can help the spine, et cetera. And the guy that was evaluating him was Dr. Steffi, the guy who developed <laughs> it. I mean, so, right. again, people when Bernie says, you know, we have terrible quality here, but then why does everybody want to come here? And why, like I said before, why doesn't somebody go, damn it, I've been diagnosed with cancer. If I could just get to Morocco, right. you know, then I might yeah. survive. Yeah. You know, no, when, when you have cancer, not only do you want to stay here, but in most parts of the country, you're within driving distance of a top-notch facility, even in the far west, I mean, um, where, where it's more sparse, but I mean, we're where I live in, in Raleigh. I mean, I'm close to Duke University Medical Center, University mm-hmm. of North Carolina, several. You're close to Ann Arbor and very, yep. you know, I mean, there are really top-notch facilities almost everywhere in this country, and you don't have that in other countries. You also have a significant amount more, I would say, development and innovation in healthcare here in the United States. And in our intro this week, we had a clip from a CNBC segment about Apple wanting to be involved in, in healthcare. How much does private, uh, privately funded innovation play a role in our quality of care here in the United States? It's huge. So the universities do a lot of research studies, and that's, and that's great. Um, but a lot of the technology advances happen through private industry, and it's because they know there's a, a payoff. It's like anything else. It's, 
you know, it's very similar to drilling oil wells. You know, if you know that the price of oil is really high and you can spend some money and if you hit an oil well, you're going to be rich, same thing happens with some of these innovations. If I can just figure out a way to do this better, cheaper, faster, I can win. Um, there's the, the, you know, and I know it's a, it's sort of a story of what went wrong, but, you know, there's that story of that, that woman who sort of, you know, bilked everybody for money by saying that she could do full drug tests just by one drop of blood. Yes. Well, yeah, she was lying, but think about if you could. Right. You know, I mean, that's what I mean by, you know, MRIs were developed for that very reason. Some of the technology that we have, um, you know, they can do imaging now on a fetus in uterine and do imaging on that fetus's heart. So that's doing an ultrasound you know, through the mother's stomach, through the baby's, when they're very small, into the baby's heart. Mm-hmm. Non-invasive, we can see if we've got heart issues. So those technology advancements almost all happen through some sort of private, private industry. Look at it. And you're referring to, by the way, just in case anyone's curious, that'd be Elizabeth Holmes, founder yeah. of the Theranos Corporation, Theranos, who was yeah. recently uh, found guilty and convicted of, of criminal fraud based off the uh, the wild claims she made about her device, which turned out to be untrue. And if anyone likes Law & Order, I would say the second episode of the new Law & Order uh, actually kind of plays off that, just as a random note if you're looking for something else to watch. Yeah. And two, you also think about the amount, of, uh, the amount of development we have in healthcare that we do export to other countries. And one of the things I'm thinking of in particular is the first uh, malaria vaccine which was started by GlaxoSmithKline in, in Belgium, but it was completed here in the United States with at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, as well as with funding from the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is huge for you know parts of Southern Africa that where children die of malaria. And this vaccine uh, ranges between 26 to 50% in infants and young children. And it was developed here in the United States and exported to to uh, lesser developed nations. Yeah, a- absolutely. So, so when I hear about things like Apple, I'm like, mm-hmm. hallelujah, jump in, man. Let's figure out how to do this better, cheaper, faster. Um, that that could be a huge help or win for us, given their, you know, their expertise and their ability to innovate. Out of sheer curiosity, and this is a little bit off tangent, what? Because we have a lot of the tech companies now that are interested in being involved in, in healthcare. I, I think all of them at this point have had some sort of device intended to, to do something. Apple has, has their Apple Watch with their other stuff, you have Fitbit. I know Amazon uh, has come out with theirs and they came under fire for the, the way that their weight loss thing works. You had to upload pictures of yourself to the cloud, which was a little weird. But it, what what's the trade-off for privacy and and developments in healthcare technology with, with companies like Apple and, and Amazon and Microsoft developing some of these new health tools that we're using? Well, I would argue that as we've used technology in better and better ways, we have that trade-off in every part of our life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I don't have to carry around cash and I have this little card with a chip on it that can let me spend on my bank account wherever I go is great, but it also gave birth to card scanners and, you know, and to people, right. you know, getting their identity and stealing your money. The fact that I can, you know, text and email from my phone is wonderful, but there's also, you know, privacy issues to that, whether people can hack that, et cetera. Same thing's going to happen with healthcare. What we've got to do is try to protect that as best we can 
and realize that there's going to be breaches, just like there are with you know with you know with your credit card, etc. We deal with the best we can because the alternative is not engaging the technology at all, you know, right. carrying around cash all the time, right? Or or not having a smartphone, and that's ludicrous because then you know the the good outweighs the potential risk there. It's something we have to be very serious about, and we need to understand how much protections we have and what is an appropriate use for the information and what isn't. But it shouldn't keep us from going down the technology road. Another good example in the healthcare field, I would suppose, be patient portals, online patient portals. Uh, even though they, they can and have been hacked in some cases, it, it makes it far more convenient to get access to medical records. Uh, through an online patient portal rather than having to physically go by your doctor's office or call them or have them mail you an envelope. Well, in, in a, per, a perfect example, you know, there's now a way for there to be, for any healthcare provider to get access to your prescription records, okay? Mm-hmm. So in the past, you know, you'd be in the ER and they'd say, okay, what, what are you taking? Oh, I thought there's that little pink pill I take. I don't know what it is. I, you know, right. and the ER doctor is saying, man, I don't want to give you something that might be contraindicated or, or have a reaction. Well, now they can go online and see it and they can go through and instead of asking you, they'll go through and say, are you still taking the Zofran? Oh, yeah. Are you still taking yeah. the Zetia? Yeah. Oh, you, you know, no, I just stopped taking that. Okay. So there's a perfect example of how it improves the quality of health care. Can those things be hacked? Of course they can. There isn't anything that can't be hacked. Um, We just try to protect it as much as possible. And it it also improves access as well. It's fortunate for me while I'm traveling that I can pull up the Kroger app on my phone and have a refill sent to a Harris Teeter pharmacy in North Carolina when I'm traveling for work and things. It makes it far more easier because no one, you know, even the fact that the that my doctor doesn't have to send a paper prescription, doesn't have to hand me a paper prescription. They can send it directly to the pharmacy, and then you're not dealing with the, the old trope about not being able to read the doctor's handwriting. But it just makes it easier for everyone with the fact that that stuff is now instantaneous as opposed to waiting for you to go there and turn in a piece of paper. Exactly. Yep, exactly. So when we look back at, at, at the three factors in, in healthcare, you know, affordability, access, and quality, how is it that we can come to a desirable outcome where in some way we can, I mean, obviously we can't have all three. It's not going to happen the way things are right now. But looking back, what what would be the most desirable outcome given what we have today? To me, it's all about balance. It's all about understanding that you can't have all of all three. And that's probably bad to have you know, the absolute maximum of any one of the three because it's going to down the other three, the other two. So, for example, it's my argument of why we shouldn't just run to Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Okay, that gives us, you know, coverage for everybody. But that's going to cost so much money, it's going to drive down access and quality and too far. So it's that balance. Even quality has to have a balance. You know, we talked about the, the Inspire device. I'm not picking on them, but... There, there needs to be a serious question to say, should we spend that much money on something that, while it makes that patient's life much more convenient, I get it, is so expensive that it probably shouldn't be done. That money could be used better elsewhere. You know, mm-hmm. the Alzheimer's drug that doesn't work very well, we probably shouldn't be prescribing that because it's very expensive and it doesn't have much value to it. So we're going to probably down tick a little bit on what quality might be. There's probably some technology we shouldn't spend money on and, and because it's too much. 
we'll sacrifice a little bit there. We'll use some of that money to provide more access and more affordability. Um, and then we've got to change some of the internal you know, drivers about why we aren't getting what we need from our own health, et cetera. But to me, again, it's, it's that balance. It's you're not going to have 100% of any of the three. You're going to sacrifice a little bit, and how do we reach that nice equilibrium where getting a little more access drops too much quality or getting a little more affordability drops too much access? And that's the, that perfect state. That's where we need to try to be. And we're a lot of a little out of balance right now. So if you if we had to emphasize two of them here in the United States, what two do you think we should emphasize? And I know that's like asking you to, you know, I know that's asking which which is your favorite kid. But yeah, you know, I was going to say that's yeah. like, well, some days that's easy. But yeah. um, um, to me, the way I look at it is there should be a certain level of quality that we're going to just sort of say that we don't go below that. Okay. Okay. And it's probably a little bit less than we have right now. And, and when I talk about quality, I don't mean, you know, how we treat cancer. I mean, some of the things we're currently paying for that I think are very expensive that don't drive a lot of clinical quality, we should probably back off on some of those. It, it also means things like we should probably not spend as much money as we do end of life when there really isn't a good outcome there. Um, some of the procedures we do end of life. And to be honest with you, a very premature life where there's no potential outcome. So, but there should be a certain level of quality. We're just not going to sacrifice below X. Mm -hmm. And then you balance the other two. How do we achieve more affordability so we can have more access and coverage? I I think you're on you're onto something with, with with that, and that that makes a lot of sense to me. But it, you're right; it's a hard decision to make depending on on the day. You know, it's it's. You hear sometimes you hear horrible stories about people that can't afford things or receive a surprise bill that you know they're they're not going to be able to afford, and you want to make it as affordable as possible on that particular day. But then when you realize how much we need that innovation and quality here in the United States to and eventually make things cheaper, I think by having better quality healthcare, um, it's a difficult decision to make. It is, and and it's easy to talk about backing off on quality a little bit or doing this in the macro sense it becomes hard when it's your loved one in the hospital mm -hmm. um, or it's you dealing with something in the in the in the very real micro sense that's where it becomes extremely difficult and kudos to to president biden i mean he knows how to break this down to a level that people can understand given his family history with his son Bo biden dying of cancer um and I, this isn't a political statement one way or the other, but I mean, he knows how to reach Americans in that regard, and he knows how to relate to them because that is something that a lot of Americans have to deal with, mm -hmm. as a and decisions that they have to make. Well, Ron, I think we're about out of time for today, but before we go, I want to make sure everyone knows that they can sign up for our emails at flatlining.net. And when you get that, you'll get this podcast delivered directly to your inbox each week. You'll also get special coverage that we're doing and uh, my newsletter, the Friday Pulse Check, which now includes uh, some short form uh, news articles that we're not necessarily writing about, but you might find interesting. Like last week, uh, the Amazon uh, company excuse me, the Alphabet-owned, Google, the Google parent company-owned uh, drone company, Wing, working with Walgreens to deliver over-the-counter medication and possibly expanding into prescription medication in the future, as well as updates on healthcare-related stories in the Ukrainian-Russian war, which I think is kind of interesting, and it's a 
perspective that I don't think many other people are talking about right now. We're focused a lot on what the World Health Organization is saying about hospital access for both refugees and people staying in the Ukraine. So that might be kind of interesting. So be sure to sign up for those at flatlining.net. Ron, uh, do you have any parting wisdom that you want to share with us for this week? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. Thanks, Matthew. Well, thank you for joining us as always, and we hope you feel better soon. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.